I was homeless, my parents had disowned me, and I was 20 years old, living in a halfway house, 
I was a snark-raging lunatic. I was a tornado ripping through people's lives. And I had created destruction everywhere I had gone. And I hope that was my last drink. It was a, a very uneventful last drink, but I, I knew the game was up. I knew that if I had any fight left in me, I wasn't going to make it much longer. And so I did something that I had never done before. I had reached out. I had been in AA for about a year. I had been in and out of the rooms because I had, was a chronic relapser. I, I could not work the AA program. I could work the AC program, but I couldn't work the AA program. I worked my program, the program according to Andy C. And it was uh, a tragic failure. But when I was 20 years old, sitting there, in the utter bewilderment of why I couldn't stay stopped, I reached out to somebody and they said to me, well, uh, you've tried AA, it doesn't work, why don't we push you into inpatient rehab? And this was back in the 80s, and in rehab, if you had a pulse and insurance, you could go to rehab. So uh, I went off to rehab. Now, I thought that I was going to go to the rehab that all of my friends had gone to. They had great insurance, and they went out to, like, Arizona, where they have, you know, those... 12 cent facials and uh, <laughs> I ended up in upstate New York, Elmira, New York, sixth floor hospital. It was a Catholic hospital. I had a little uh, statue of Jesus hanging on a cross above my bed. And I would look up at that statue and I'd say, Dude, we're the two Jews in this place. <laughs> And I feel the way you look. <laughs> it was Christmas time. It was actually Hanukkah time. And um, I had, they, they wanted us to make Christmas decorations. And I was very contentious, you know, because uh, being the only Jewish person, you know, in upstate New York is what it felt like. I, I wouldn't make the Christmas decorations. I had to make Hanukkah decorations. And so I made this dreidel. And for those of you who don't know what a dreidel is, it's a spinning top, and in each side of the top it represents a letter in Hebrew that represents uh, this concept that a great miracle happened there, meaning that a great miracle happened in the land of Israel many years ago, and a small army overcame a large army, and it was a miracle. And, uh, so I made a dreidel, and I put it on my door to represent that a great miracle can happen here. And, you know, we had counselors who were so pissed off, because it was in Hebrew, and they didn't know what it meant. They thought, oh, this was a pagan voodoo person, you know. They had to call in a Jewish doctor to verify that this was actually Hebrew, and it was what it meant it was. So, um, we did make a lot of friends at this hospital, needless to say. But, uh, uh, they did bring AA meetings into the hospital. And something happened around the third week bringing to these meetings where I surrendered, at least temporarily, to say, you know, my way hasn't worked. I'm going to try the way that these AAs are talking because I've never tried doing it exactly the way it is laid out in the book. I've never tried that. I've done it my way. But I'm going to do it their way because I think these guys are a bunch of freaks. And if I try it exactly their way and it doesn't work, I can prove, yes, they were in deep freeze, and it didn't work. So it was suggested that I go to a halfway house, and I went to this halfway house. I ended up in Rochester, New York. I was unemployable. I was unable to continue with school. I was crazy, and I'm living here on welfare in this halfway house. I had no friends. None of the girls in the house liked me. Why? I don't know. <laughs> and I, I got sober. I had one friend. She was a nun. And we'd go to meetings together. We were friends of the friendless. You know, we would walk into meetings like a joke. You know, me and this nun would walk in and they were going to be part, you know. But what happened was we, we, we were really difficult people to get along with. And uh, we found other really difficult people to get along with. We formed our little friends of the friendless group. And we'd go to meetings and we'd go out for coffee, you know. And we were just total nerds. You know, the relations would walk up to us and say, well, would you like to drink? And we'd say, oh, you know, I need to drink, you know, drink. <laughs> And, um, you know, we, we just enjoyed being who we were. And somehow, through the time that I was living in this halfway house, the miracle of AA started to happen. And then somewhere around the, the six-month mark, my Hebrew grew back. And, um, you know, everywhere in AA, I was like, you know, you have to find God. Now, I had a really hard time with this concept of God. I want to tell you that, you know, talk about, like we talk about God and uh, the spiritual nature of this, of this uh, fellowship, and, and I really, I 
was not raised with a disbelief in God, but I wasn't really raised with a belief in God. Now, I went to Sunday school, and I was a nice Jewish girl. I knew what my religion was, but this idea of this deity was very hard for me to connect with. And I really felt that the this God concept that everybody was pushing on me upstate Rochester, New York, was, was really not the God of my understanding. It was the God of my misunderstanding. And people said to me, you know, Andy, you don't have to believe in our God. You just have to believe in something bigger than you. And so I had to believe in a concept for me that I really didn't believe in, but I had to believe that you believed. And that was enough for me to start a relationship with a God of my understanding, which I really didn't understand. But I was willing to try to believe in this God until I was six months over. And then I met her. Yes, you see, she was my counselor in the halfway house. And um, she was the answer. She was the wrong answer. But she was the answer for the time we were uh, sick. I was six months over to nine months over. And I want to share with you that a lot of my sobriety is what not to do. And this is the best part. You can make horrific, egregious errors and still stay sober. And I love that about this program. But I defied every law and every rule that the people in AA told me. In my first year, they said, don't get into a relationship. I got into a relationship. They said, don't make any major changes. I made major changes. I did all those things. And somehow I managed to stay sober. Now, by the time I was nine months sober, I had been kicked out of the halfway house. I was still living on welfare. I was living in a tenement home in downtown Rochester. And I hit a bottom that I had, that was lower than the bottom that I had hit when I was living in the rehab. And I didn't know I could feel so despondent and so awful. And today I am so grateful for that feeling. Because at nine months of sobriety, I had to make a decision. And the decision was that I want to live or die. And did I want to live and not live the way I had been living for the past three months, which was running the show on my own? And what I did by at that point was I made a decision to get a new sponsor and to start going to different meetings. And I did that, and I chose what I thought was the healthy way. Because I, I rededicated myself to the, to the program as I understood it at the time that I was nine months sober. And my life got a little bit better. And I want to share with you what my life looked like at the time. There I was on welfare, living in this uh, downtown slum. And I had been going to meetings. And by that point, I had started to go back to school. And the way I had been raised, I was the youngest of three girls. And my parents raised me to be a nice huge girl, get married, have a couple of children. And I knew at a very young age, that that life was not going to be the life that I was going to be able to live. Now, I had to live a double life because I wanted everybody on the outside to think, oh, sure, this is who I am. I look heterosexual, and I look, you know, like I have it well put together. But I had this other secret life. And for many years in sobriety, I lived what felt like this double life because I could never reconcile the two. And it wasn't just my sexuality. It was this, this feeling of rottenness that I had inside that I thought if I just acted like I had everything together, I would be okay. And the people talks about that, like that this is the person who feels that if they just manage well, things will be okay. But there's a time where, when we have to reconcile this and it doesn't work. And I've had those experiences many times during my sobriety, and here was one of them. So after I hit my bottom at nine months through this relationship, I rededicated myself to the program as I understood it at the time. I understood that I wasn't going to become the insurance salesperson that my parents wanted me to become. And I embraced my true calling. I looked at my parents and I said, Mom, Dad, I'm going to become a professional musician and move to Nashville, Tennessee. I want to be a songwriter. And they looked at me and they said, that's great. You don't play an instrument. <laughs> and I said, that's okay. I heard in the whole time that if you make a center of your life and you dedicate yourself to the program, remarkable things can happen. So at a year and a half of sobriety, I moved to Nashville, Tennessee with a guitar and the clothes on my back and the car that my parents gave me. And I made Alcoholics Anonymous the center of my life. And I was there a year and a half. And I got a sponsor who had everything I wanted, a flashy car, 
the right outsides, the parties, the music, uh, she was in the music business. But she only had a few more months than I did, and she never worked yet. So there I was at two and a half years of sobriety. I was stark, raging lunatic. I wanted to blow my head off because I didn't understand why AA wasn't working. And then I thought, you know, I'm going to go to one more meeting. And if something doesn't happen at that meeting, then I'm going to go home and I'm going to have a really long talk with God and this may or may not, may not be the end. But something did happen at that meeting that night. I met a gentleman named Don Roy who changed my life. First he offended me, then he changed my life. <laughs> and he got me into service, and he introduced me to the sponsor that I was to have for the next nine years. And this woman was from the Joe Hawks step study, and she used to have step studies with her sponsees, and we learned how to work the steps, and I understood what my problem was. You see, I had been not drinking and going to meetings, and I had a sponsor on record, but I had never worked the steps, the first 164 pages of this book. So I had treated my body by going to meetings, and I had treated my spirit by cleaning up ashtrays and mopping the floors after meetings, but I had never gotten into the recovery aspect. And what this woman Peggy did was she introduced me to her other 19 sponsees, and she was a remarkable woman. She sponsored half of the known world in Nashville, but she, she was available to us sometimes, but she'd say, you know, if you can't reach me, you have to call your sister sponsees. And she did not let us get dependent on her alone, and she had us not only call our sister sponsees, but when we had inventory to do, we did our inventory with our sister sponsees. So that it wasn't just my sponsor who knew me, but my, the other girls around me knew me as well. And all of us are sober today. Rita B. and I were talking about this, that 20-something years later, that whole group that got sober together and studied the book and studied the steps are still sober today, which is truly remarkable. And we're all still in touch, which is also remarkable, because we get to celebrate being sober today, a generation later. So there I was in Nashville, Tennessee. Things started doing a little bit better because I had been working the steps, and we got to the fourth step. And I was standing there at the, at the restaurant that I, I was working in at the time, and I thought, damn it, I have to do this inventory. I don't want to do any inventory. I'm not doing the inventory. Because he walked in. And he was married to a very famous country music singer. And he thought I was fabulous. Only thing I decided to see was Halloween, and we were required to wear a costume to work that day. So I decided that I was going to wear a slip with Xerox pictures of Sigmund Freud on me, and I went to work that day as a Freudian slip. <laughs> with nothing underneath it. So he asked me out, and I said yes. And uh, I introduced him a couple of weeks later to my sponsor as my boyfriend. And she said, well, it's very nice to meet you. And she asked him to leave the office. And she sat me down and she said, are you supposed to be doing a fourth step? I said, yes, yes, of course. But for right now, I, well, I'll get to it. I, I just want to take this little detour for now, a little distraction, you know. Like, I'll get to the work eventually. And she said, now, didn't you tell me you were gay? And I'm like, oh, details, details. You know, I heard. And 
for me, I needed that distraction because I'm, I'm one of those people that the book talks about that like, we, we, we touch the stove because we say it's not going to burn me this time. I'm not somebody who can hear from my sponsor what to do and what not to do. I have to have my own experience. And I had a sponsor who loved me enough to say, go have your own experience, and then you'll have the blisters and scars to show for it. So a year and a half after this gentleman and I dated, he basically chewed off his arm to get away from me from the trap I set for him. I was four years sober, and I was absolutely despondent. I was despondent and bereft because once again I had made a person into my higher power and I didn't even know it. And when I was absolutely filled with sorrow that I was in this place, my sponsor asked me a really evil question. She said, are you now willing to refrain from all mood-altering relationships for at least one year and rededicate yourself to working these steps? And I was in so much pain that I said, I will do anything. And she said, well, it's time for you to get busy. So I got busy into the work of Alcoholics Anonymous, working with steps. I redoubled my efforts, and I started on my amends. And making my nine-step amends absolutely transformed and changed my life in ways that I can't even explain. I literally had to fly all over the world to make some of the amends that I had to make. I had to fly to New York. I had to go back out to California. I had to go to Israel to make some amends for the drinking, for the damage that I had done in the drinking of my teenage years when I had been there. And I didn't know how I was going to get to Israel from Nashville, Tennessee. See, at the time I was teaching Sunday school, and I didn't have a lot of money. I was waiting tables. And the religious school principal came to me one day and she said, you know, Andy, I have a scholarship to send one teacher to Israel for a teacher's conference, and I think that person's going to be you. Now, my religious school teacher, the principal, thought I was going for the conference, but I knew really why I was going. I was going to attend the conference and go make my events. And I'm so grateful to say that if we do the work of this program and we do the work of the eighth step where we make the list and we are ready to make our amends, God will make it possible for those amends to happen, and all we have to do is be willing to show up. So I came back from Israel, and I stayed out of mood-altering relationships, and celibate, not just for one year, but for two. That wasn't my choice. In my second year of celibacy, I called my mom friend that I got sober with, and I'm like, how the hell do you do this? One day at a time. Right on the second year mark, my sponsor said to me, Andy, why don't you pray and ask God to send you the person who's supposed to be in your life? And I had been working with the stacks at that time, and I had been doing a lot of prayer and a little bit of meditation. And around that time, I met the love of my life. Her name is Jane. And I just knew that she was the right person for me. I didn't know when I saw her from across the room or anything like that. It was one of those things where I met her, I talked to my sponsor, I did a lot of inventory, and she said, you know, you'll things will fall into place if it's meant to be. And that's what happened for us. My experience was uh, when it was time, it was right, things fell into place. So Jane and I set up shop, and uh, amazing things happened after that. I, I got my first professional songwriting deal, and I was writing professionally for a while. And then I got this beautiful sponsee who was a country music singer. She had a, a deal on Polygram Records, and her... Uh, they were writing for her album, and I was sponsoring her, and one day she looked at me and she said, you know, I'm having trouble with one of the songs on my album. I just can't get it right. Why don't you take a crack at it? And I said, well, you know, I am a professional songwriter now. Maybe I can help you with your song. I called my sponsor, and I said to her, you know, my sponsor wants me to write with her for her album. And my sponsor said to me, you know, I think that's a really bad idea. She said, you know, your sponsee is an artist, and she's going to be making a lot of money as soon as her album comes out. And if you mix sponsorship and business, it could be a disaster. And I heard, wah, 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 wah. And I said, okay, thanks very much. Uh, I'll make the right decision. And I, 
hung up with my sponsor, and I fired my sponsor, and I started to write with her. And we wrote some unbelievably wonderful songs. My publishing company was crazy about the songs we were writing. Her record company, this was great. But about six months after we started writing together, my sponsee, who had had five years at the time, drank again. Now, I'm not saying that she drank again because I wasn't her sponsor. She drank because she's an alcoholic. But I understand that a year later, right before her album was supposed to come out, and everybody in Nashville, all the A&R and all the marketing people who were supposed to come to her record opening, the day before, she swallowed a bottle of sleeping pills and drank half a bottle of vodka, and she called me. Now, I understand that my job at that moment was to call 911 and meet them at the hospital. But the problem was I was about nine, uh, seven years sober at the time, and she's in the hospital, they're pumping her stomach, and I'm looking at her, and this was my thought. It was not, oh my God, how tragic this beautiful young girl is dying of alcoholism. My thought was, her album is supposed to come out tomorrow. I have had the songs on it. My livelihood is depending on her album coming out tomorrow. I wonder how we can get her well enough to be able to get on stage tomorrow. So that the, I wonder if maybe I could take her flight. It was not even a thought of her. And I looked at myself and I thought, oh my God, can you be more disgusting? I was just appalled at who I had become at that moment. I was so wrapped up in self that I couldn't see her dying of alcoholism. All I could see was me. And at that moment, for me, my songwriting career was over. I mean, I was still under contract, and I still wrote songs. But I went into this depression of, oh, my God, how can I be this kind of awful person? And I went back to God, and I said, God, I will do anything you asked me to do, I just don't want to be the person that I am. And I wish I could tell you that the heavens opened up and the angels smiled upon me, and it wasn't anything like that. It was like a nine-month depression where I would call my sponsor every day, and she'd say, honey, get on your knees, take a shower, and get to the 9 o'clock meeting, go to Woodbine, and go help in your car. And that's all I could do, was I got up, I showered, I went and helped the newcomer, and then I went to my shift as a waitress. And I walked through that very dark time until I got the calling. I got a calling at nine months over. You should become a rabbi. And I called my sponsor at that moment, because I thought I was hearing voices. It was that strong, it was that convicting that I should become a rabbi. Of course, at that moment before I called my sponsor, I said, God, I will do anything else, but do not make me a rabbi. Because you see, the rabbis that I have, like they spit on you, and uh, they were really nerdy, and uh, they were not here something cool like I thought I could be. I just didn't want to be one of those. And, and, and I'm just going to say, I'm a heathen. You know, I, I don't really know that I believe in God. You know, I... That's why I like to have a little baking. Like, I'm just not a really good Jewish person, you know? <laughs> I just God had the wrong number, you know? But my sponsor said, Andy, do the footwork and see what happens. So I prayed about it with my spouse, and I said, you know what? It's going to mean that we have to move to Jerusalem, Israel, and we're going to have to literally change our lives. And she said, I'm in for the ride. So, things fell into place. I got into rabbinical school. We, we had two dogs. Jay and I moved to Jerusalem, Israel, for a year. I, I did AA and went to rabbinical school, yes, in that order, in Israel, because living in Israel was very stressful. And I got, uh, I got the job as the uh, secretary of the Shalom group. And I was the secretary, and that's literally what I did for that was how I stayed sober and sane in Jerusalem. And then Jane and I moved back. We had a choice of where to go to rabbinical school. I could have gone to New York, L.A., or Cincinnati, Ohio, which is where the rabbinical college is. And we chose Cincinnati, Ohio, because Jane's from this area, and we wanted to be close to family. I wanted to be close to Nashville, because I wanted to be able to drive five hours to my people. And I moved here. And I hooked in with Lizette, and I got a sponsor, my sponsor, Patty O, for uh, five years. And it was a wonderful five years. 
of school. I had a struggle a lot. I'm not a really good student. I am an example that if you sit in a classroom long enough, they will eventually give you a piece of paper. <laughs> I always say, you know what they call you know, the person who graduates last in rabbinical school? Rabbi. <laughs> but I will say this. Um, the gift that, that AA gave me in rabbinical school is I was struggling so much. Patty said to me, Andy, why don't you just work AA in school? I'm like, what, I'm supposed to bring my professor coffee? Half yeah. You know, I was supposed to create fellowship amongst my, my rabbinical friends. And she said, yeah, why don't you try that? Just work AA in school. So I showed up early, and I really did bring coffee for my professor and my class. And I was of service to my classmates. And when I got ordained, I got two of the highest awards that can be given to a rabbinical student. The first one was the award for best sermon and best sermon giver. You see, I've been giving Rabbi in AA at the time for 15 years. So 15 years of public speaking, my like, contemporaries didn't have a chance, you know? <laughs> but the second award they gave me was for someone who created community. And I shared that award with AA because you taught me how to be a good student by just being a good AA in my school life. And my grades didn't matter. It was not a great business what my grades were. My job was to show up and be the best friend and student and person that I could be. Now, while I was doing this, Jane and I uh, we made the decision that we wanted to have a child together. And I looked at Jane and she said to me, I really want to have a baby, the clock is ticking, I'm 39, and I, this is something that I really want. I said, Jane, that's great. But I didn't know any other women couples that had kids. So we figured out how to do it, and uh, the doctor looked at her one day, and she got pregnant. And nine months later, she gave birth to this beautiful, healthy baby boy. And a few months after that, it was clear that we couldn't live in, in Ohio anymore. I had to get a job, and I moved to Lombard, Illinois, where I became the assistant rabbi. And we had this 15-month-old baby, and I was a full-time rabbi, and things were good. But I knew, having this 15-month-old, that I really wanted to have more children. And so Jane looked at me, and he said, look, I'm 41 years old. My room's closed. If you want to have a child, it's on you. So I started trying. I thought the doctor would look at me just as he looked at her, and boom, it would happen. But that wasn't my experience. We tried, and we tried, and we tried, and we tried, and every month, nothing happened. It was during this time I had a sponsor. And the way I found my sponsor was when I moved to Lombard, I would go to the meetings and I'd say, God, please send me the person. Please send me the woman who has more time than me, who's more active in this program than me, that knows this book better than me. Send me the person who's supposed to be my sponsor. And the person that would walk into the room after I prayed that prayer was this guy named Steve. And Steve was this ancient guy. He was like 60-something, you know? Ancient. And he'd walk in and I'd be like, Send me the person who's supposed to be my sponsor, damn it, not this baseball. And I went to meeting after meeting, praying that prayer, and Steve would be the next person he would walk in. And I'm like, now, God, hey, 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 you know, when you sponsor women, that sponsor men. And I want to share with you that my resentment toward God was growing by the month. And I pulled him aside one day when I felt that I was dying of alcoholism. I had a resentment the size of Texas. And I needed somebody to help me with him. That's a big resentment. And I sat him down and I talked to him, and Steve gave me the steps that I was to take right out of this book. And I said, well, that's stupid. Why would I do that? But I was dying of alcoholism and of this resentment untreated, and I did everything Steve told me to do, and I got better. And that's how I knew Steve was supposed to be my sponsor. I went to him and I said, Stephen, I need you to sponsor me. And he looked at me aghast. And he said, I can't sponsor you. You're a woman. I said, I know, give it a try. So he went to his sponsor. And he asked permission from his sponsor. And his sponsor said, you know, men don't sponsor women in these parts, but why don't you try it for three months? But before you do that, you have to ask your wife if it's okay. And so he and his wife went out with me and my wife. And she looked at us and she said, oh, go ahead and sponsor her. 
you can have a male sponsor because you're gay. And I want to tell you that I have a male sponsor because I have a loving God. Because this man, who has never had a menstrual cycle, brought me through my years of infertility by not making it about male or female, but by saying, Andy, this is a surrender issue. And God is asking you to surrender your will to him and to get out of the solution. That I would be absolutely okay no matter what, whether I had a baby or not. And month after month, this would go on. And sure enough, one day, James looked at me and said, Andy, I cannot handle the ups and downs of this emotion anymore. This has to be the end. You are 41 years old. We're done. And I knew she was right. I knew that the emotional roller coaster that we've been on for the past five years was killing us. And I said, Jane, I'm so alcoholic. One more time. And she said, okay, one more time. And I got to this place of absolute surrender that I said to God, it is none of my business whether or not I have a child. I even got to this point of, you know what, I don't even want another one. I'm fine. I'm fine with just the one I have, or I'll travel. This will be great. I am fabulous. I had gone through every emotion under the sun, most of it anger, that God for not giving me what I want. And by the time we had tried the last time, I was positive that I was not pregnant. I was two weeks into the, into the process, and I had just given it up and said, I am so beaten up by this process. I surrender it to you. I am absolutely okay with you no matter what happens. And I think I'd even be happier if it were just done. So I knew I was done. I was not pregnant. I went and I drank the first diet coke that I had had in five years. It was an elixir. It was so good. I drank that diet coke and I had to take a pregnancy test. So I went to the doctor and I'm like, look, I'm not pregnant. Leave it the hell alone. Just give me the cup. And sure enough, I was pregnant. And I was pissed. I cussed at the doctor. He's like, how I? Because I thought he was lying to me. You see, Dean and I, we had a miscarriage. We, I was four months along, and I didn't think that I could have a baby. I couldn't carry a baby to term. So what made me think that I could get pregnant again? And I had that fear, well, I'm pregnant, but you know, it doesn't mean anything. About six weeks into that pregnancy, Jane came to me to an ultrasound. And we looked at the ultrasound, and we were, we were amazed because there were two heartbeats. And I said, boy. <laughs> and I went to my son, I said, Steve, I asked for one child. Why am I having two? And he said, because you're alcoholic, you never had one of anything. <laughs>
what was going on in my life at the time was my partner of 19 years came to me one day and she said, Andy, I love you and I love our children, but I can't do this anymore. And she moved out. The boys were three years old and she left to get away from my untreated alcoholism. Now, at the time, I didn't understand that it was untreated alcoholism, but you, you know I had a very busy life. I was very active in this program. I was full-time rabbi. I was mom to these children. I was a daughter to my parents, and my sister lives in, in Lamarck now. They all somehow ended up where I was there in Chicago. And when she left, it was as if the ground had opened up, and I was plunged into subterranean levels of grief and pain like I hadn't known in years. And I don't know why I was so despondent over this relationship breaking up. I mean, things hadn't been good for a long time, but I didn't want to see it. And I crawled to my sponsor, and my sponsor said, we have to get busy in inventory and find out where you made your mistakes. My mistake. She's the one who left. This is not me. I didn't want this. And I felt as if I was in early sobriety and limping along, where I was acting crazy, and I was having trouble with money, I was having trouble with relationships. My, my boss was getting ready to announce his retirement, and there was talk about me becoming the senior rabbi one day, and I didn't know if I even wanted that, because... For me, my job had become something I began to hate because it had taken away my focus on my partner and our relationship had just disintegrated it. And then I started to do inventory. And about four months after Jane moved out, I went to her and I said, Jane, if you had said to me four months ago, you know, what's the problem? I would have said you are the problem. But after I did four months of inventory, I said to her, I understand why you left. I would have left me too. And when I said that to her, she agreed. But she moved back in. Now, I would like to tell you that once she moved back in, the heavens opened up and the, the light shined down upon us and we were fine because I'd gotten what I wanted. She came back. But in some ways, things got worse. Because now we have to do the work of the couple that we hadn't done for a long time. And my sponsor stood by me while I was despondent, having everything that I thought I wanted, and it still wasn't okay. And I was at a low and a depression that I hadn't been at since the early years. And that was when I got on my knees and I said to God, it is none of my business who is in my life today. It is none of my business what job I have today. It is none of my business what my children do or don't do today. My job is to be the person you need me to be to be of service, of maximum service in this world. And I got busy in what Mark Houston calls the discipline of 10 and 11 and 12. And I started to do a meditation in the morning and inventory at night, and meditating on the day morning, I went into the day book, and I worked the book exactly as it says, because I was going to prove to Mark that it wasn't going to work for me. And do you know, I didn't know that Mark had died until you mentioned me yesterday, but I want, I want to share with you an experience that I had. I had to do a, a wedding in Cincinnati a couple of months back, and I was in the car, and I was listening to some strange speakers, you know, and I heard this speaker. And she just blew my socks off because she made everything that Mark H. was talking about come alive. I thought, who is this woman? I've got to meet this woman. And I looked down at the speaker, and it's this woman, Katie P. <laughs> the hell is Katie P., you know? I don't like Katie P., Katie P. Hmm. So I go to the book, I round up, she. She's really familiar. And sure enough, I'm speaking with KDP in November. So I call her. And I'm like, dude, you speak my language. She said, yeah, language of the heart. And she talked to me about some of the disciplines of Title 11. And it was as if she was speaking Greek to me. She said, you know, when you get disturbed, you need to call someone. I'm like, what does that mean? 
I mean, I was like, that's that you call your sponsor, but I didn't realize that there was an actual recipe for what to do when you got disturbed. That when you got disturbed, you ask God to remove these disturbance. You call somebody immediately. You make amends as quickly as you can. And then you turn your thoughts to someone you can help. And if you do that throughout the day, you can write whatever disturbance you're going through, and you can be absolutely okay so that you can, not so that you're okay, but so that you can be useful to God and not be squandering your energy with unnecessary excess emotion. And I didn't understand that until I had that conversation with her. And I want to share with you that for me, the place that I was at at 25 years of sobriety was beyond human aid. That I could not find a spot for myself. I was so uncomfortable. I could not sleep. I had had everything that I wanted, and it still wasn't okay. And I had to surrender myself to a lower level with God. A level that I had thought I'd already surrendered during my years of infertility, it was, that was like the mountain. The level of surrender that I had to go to at this point after Jane left and then when she came back was even deeper. And I want to describe it. One way for me to describe it is uh, in, in 1859, a gentleman by the name of Charles Blondin made the world record for stringing up a rope between Niagara Falls, over Niagara Falls from the New York side to the Canada side. And he walked the 1,100 steps across, and he became the first person to ever cross the falls. And during the weeks that followed, he walked across many other times, one time on stilts, another time he brought an oven and a chair with him, and he sat down after he made an omelet and ate it in the middle of a rope on the falls. And one day, he brought a wheelbarrow, wheelbarrow to the New York side, and he asked the crowd of thousands of onlookers, do you think that I can cross the falls with this wheelbarrow? They said, sure. So he put 350 pounds of cement in, and he walked across. And the next day, he said, do you think I can walk across with a person in this wheelbarrow? And that one guy yelled out, of course you can. And Charles Blondin looked at him and said, get in. <laughs> and I want to share with you today that for me, that metaphor of getting into that wheelbarrow is the difference in my sobriety. That before I was the guy in the crowd saying, yeah, I believe that you can walk across the falls with somebody in that wheelbarrow, but real faith is getting in. And today, every morning when I do my meditation and my prayer, I surrender my life to God and say, my life is none of my business. When it is my business, it will kill me. Two weeks ago, a letter went out to my congregation saying that when my senior rabbi retires, I am now a new senior rabbi. And that is not because of anything that I did, except I worked this program. And I surrendered the outcome. I didn't even care if I was to become a senior or not. It became unimportant to me. I am a good rabbi today, and I am a good mom, I am a good daughter, and I am a good sponsor because of the disciplines that you taught me, that I was willing to follow. And those disciplines are in this book if we're willing to open it up and follow it and trust the guidance that's given to us by our sponsor, and then we pass it along. Because every problem that I've had this year, I've had the privilege of working with another girl who's had the exact same problem. So that my problems are no longer, oh, I have these problems. It's, I have these problems so that I have the experience to share and be helpful to another person. So that my job is to get out of the way so God can work through me. And that is my hope for you, is that we do this work together so that we get the ego out of the way, so we can be the clearest channel for God to work through us, and for us to be the next generation of AA that we pass along. I'll end with this story. Gentleman named Pete likes to tell the story, but I just love this because it, it demonstrates what's given to us, the choice that's given to us 
in this program. And the story he tells is of this ocean liner. This Russian family buys this ticket, third-class ticket to go on this ocean liner, sails from Russia to go to the New World. And they bring with them their last few rubles and some stale crackers and old moldy cheese, but that's what they can afford. And they sit down in their third-class cabin with the fumes of the ship, and they're sitting in the room for days on end, the mother, the father, and the daughter, and they're eating these stale crackers and moldy cheese. And finally, the daughter says, I can't stand this. I have to get out of this room. I have to go on the rest of the ship and find out what else is out there. So the father lovingly hands her his last two rubles and says, go. And she goes, and she's gone for hours, and the parents start to fret, and they're worried, scared out of their minds, where has our daughter gone? And she comes back, and her face is radiant, and she is filled with joy and love and food. And she says, Mom, Dad, you won't believe this. There are rooms filled with the most succulent banquet food. And you can eat it. There's meats and there's cheeses and there's fruits and there's salads and there's drinks and it's fresh. And the father looks at her and says, how did you buy all that with the two rubles? And she said, Dad, all of that is free. It was included with the price of the ticket. And that is what we do in this program. We lock ourselves into small rooms eating stale crackers and moldy cheese, not realizing that we are on this great ocean liner. That when we came into this room, all of that was included in the price of the ticket. And we just have to go out and explore and know that it's there. And it's there. And it's open to all of us, regardless of how rotten we think we are. If we give that rottenness to God and do these steps, God transforms us into the best possible people we can be, children of God, and instruments for God's use. May you find yourselves at the banquet.